Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, made it through another week. Yeah, let's celebrate that. <laughs> I'm here. The little things in life that you didn't, you know, that you used to take for granted. I, uh, I, you know, the, I think you can tell this Roman series that our, our staff, our church, our teachers are just passionate about the gospel. It's really amazing the more you delve into it. But I got to tell you this, when I collapsed in the atrium three weeks ago, the team did what they're supposed to do. They ripped my shirt apart. And it happened to be the most expensive shirt I've ever worn in my life. <laughs> Sherry got it for me last year. And when the guys ripped it open, buttons went flying in the atrium. And if Jesus were alive today, he'd tell a parable about that. This is what the kingdom of God is like. <laughs> it's like buttons on an expensive shirt that went flying across an atrium and were lost. But behold... Brett Downing found the buttons and gave them last week to with me. Let's give it up for Brett Downing because he has redeemed my shirt. The shirt is in the state of repair and redemption and we are all rejoicing that they were lost but now are found. And, and uh, yeah, so today, today is just merely to get us ready for Christmas. Just get us ready for the Christ there are a lot of Christmas carols that have been written, but I don't know if there's anyone prettier than the one you just sang. Do you? Isn't that amazing? The team, what they did with that today. It's just, I hope you went to the throne this morning. Well, I don't know if you noticed those big, that big erector set going out, out there this, on your way in today. Isn't that exciting to see that? And I think about the things that are going to happen, the interactions that are going to happen in that space. And I want to take a minute to say thank you to those of you who are a part of the Players Box campaign. To date, we have 347 families who have given 85%, 85% of our three-year, $4 million goal. And we have a year to go. Um, and that means that we have a substantial opportunity to, to limit our borrowing. And uh, with Reverie, we did it debt-free. We didn't make that claim that we were going to do that with this. But the more we raise, the more that frees up what Reverie and then Players Box will do, and that is generate money for ministry, the more we go past that. So today, if you are here and you say, you know what, I want to be a part of this, you can join now. If you want to be one of, one of the 347 families, then um, uh, we, we would love for you to be a part of it. You can go to southbrook.org and you can click the button there that is the Players Box campaign and it'll tell you everything you need to do. If you are one of the four, 347 families, we just want to say, a, I want to say a deep thank you. Uh, it's, 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 I think about the students who are going to be impacted, the families that are going to be impacted down through the years because you did this, uh, it, is, it is enormous. For all of you, I'd ask that you pray. Pray that we not only meet our campaign, but that we also, you know, we have a regular general budget that we have to fulfill for us to do the ministry that, that we believe God has called us to do. So, so pray for that and do your part in that. Um, again, joining this campaign is really simple and just go to southbrook.org. We are in a series right now called The Baby That Brought Rome to Its Knees. And one of the things we're doing is, is showing you how in the book of Romans, the, the, this letter that 
that changed these people in Rome would eventually germinate into the Roman Empire. And a few hundred years later, Rome became a Christian empire and surrendered to, to the claims of Christ. And today is, I hope that when, when you hear these words today, that they are as encouraging to you, the words of Romans 7, as they are to so many of us who are realistic about our lack of becoming like Jesus. We, we, if the longer you're in this Jesus following, the more you can get disillusioned with yourself. And so, I, I, just simply this question, how many of you have ever been disappointed you didn't get something you wanted? All of us, right? There is a legendary Christmas movie about this very concept of wants and disappointments, and it has to do with an official Red Rider carbon action range model air rifle with the compass in the stock. And what's the big prohibition against Ralphie getting what he wants? What is it? You'll shoot your eye out. And isn't that like life? Sometimes we, get, we don't get what we want, and that's disappointing. And then sometimes we do get what we want, and we can't handle it. Because the first thing we do is we go outside and nearly shoot our eye out. Oscar Wilde once famously wrote, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. In other words, one thing in life is not getting what you want, and the other thing is sometimes getting what you wanted. But we, ha- we talk a lot in this culture about despair and, and disillusionment and depression. What we don't talk about is the nagging wear down of disappointment. But I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted it. One of my favorite, and I know Southworkers have heard me tell this, but I love the story about the little guy who was wanting to play Joseph in the Christmas pageant, and he didn't get the part of Joseph in the Christmas pageant. He was given the role of the minor role as the innkeeper, which if you know the story, is the bad guy in the whole pageant. And he brooded about it, he pouted about it at rehearsals, and the night of the pageant came, and this little guy had not thought about this night for nothing. Mary and Joseph come up to the inn, and they knock on the door. And, uh, and they knock on the door, and the innkeeper in the, in, the, the little, little innkeeper, he opens the door and, and Joseph uh, says, is there a place we can stay? And the little innkeeper hadn't thought about this for nothing. He goes, yeah, come on in. You can stay at my place tonight. <laughs> and Joseph just kind of froze for a minute because this wasn't in the loop two script. And, and he, but he was a quick thinker and he put his head in and he goes, you know what? No wife of mine's going to stay in a place like this. Let's go to the barn, Mary. And the plot was back on course. <laughs> I know little guys. That's the way they would think about it. You know, one thing worse in life than disappointment is in, in others, disappointment in government, disappointment in sports, disappointment in education, disappointment in corporations, disappointment in the church, all these institutions that we're disappointed in. One of the hardest things is this disappointment that we carry around in ourselves? I don't know about you, but as a, as, as a person who's wired to achieve, one of the reasons I'm in the fix I'm in is that, that I have had to acknowledge this disappointment I have in myself that keeps me not meeting expectations and is a real problem. Max Lucado, in a, in a really well-written chapter, What Man Dared Not Dream, he said, 
he summed up humanity's hopes and our disappointed hopes. He said, Santa reflects the desires of people all over the world. With the centuries, he has become a composite of what we hope for, a friend who cares enough to travel a long way against all odds to bring good gifts to good people. A sage who, though aware of each act, has a way of rewarding the good and overlooking the bad. If you were with us last week, that was the content, the subject matter. A friend of children who never gets sick, never goes old, a father who lets you sit on his lap and share your deepest desires. The culmination of what we need in a hero is Santa, the personification of our passions, the expression of our yearnings, the fulfillment of our desires, and the betrayal of our meager expectations. What you say, let me explain. You see, Santa can't provide what we really need. For one thing, he's only around once a year when January's winds chill our souls, he's history. When December's requests become February's bills, Santa has left them all. When April demands the taxes or May brings final exams, Santa is still months from his next visit. And should July find us ill or October find us alone, we can't go to his chair for comfort. It's still empty. He only comes once a year. When he comes, though he gives much, he doesn't take away very much. He doesn't take away the riddle of the grave, the burden of your mistakes and the anxiety of the demands you carry. He is kind and quick and cute, but when it comes to healing hurts, don't go to Santa. And he is this personification that, you know, how we create. The worst thing about false gods is the gods we create fall short. They're not big enough to fulfill. And I think this is why when Thoreau wrote the words, most men live lives of quiet desperation, is this sense our fairy tales in our culture, they, they, they represent the gospel hopes, but then they fall short because they don't promise enough. Uh, if the truth were known, I'm not just disappointed in politicians and corporations and spiritual leaders and the Cleveland Browns nearly as much as I am disappointed in myself. Disappointed in myself. One of the most disappointing moments in life is when we discover we cannot save ourselves from ourselves. We can't. And what we do, because we, you may sit there and go, well, I don't know, I'm disappointed in myself. I bet if I were watching how you overfunction to cover it over, I would, eh. Or if I saw how much you keep busy to stay in denial, because if you don't know it, then maybe other people don't notice it. And what we're doing is we're just, we're, we are simply Adam and Eve covering ourselves with the fig leaves of denial that we haven't met. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We fall short. Writer John Ortberg gave a compellingly honest assessment of his disappointment in his own words. Uh, in his own life, and see if you can identify with these words. He said, I am disappointed with myself. I am disappointed, not so much with the particular things I've done as with aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. And, and again, as you hear that, that, that's what sin does. It keeps you from living the life you were meant to live. Some of this disappointment is trivial. I wouldn't have minded getting a more muscular physique, for example. I can't do basic home repairs. I'm disappointed in that. So far, I haven't shown much financial wizardry. Some of this disappointment is neurotic. Sometimes I'm too concerned about what others think of me, even people I don't know. You know, I love that adage, if you worry too much about what people 
think of you, you'll be disappointed to discover how seldom they do. They're actually thinking of themselves a lot. Some of this disappointment I know is worse than trivial. It is simply the sour fruit of self-absorption. I attend a high school reunion and can't choke back the desire to stand out by looking more attractive or having more impressive accomplishments than my classmates. I speak to someone with whom I want to be charming and my words come out awkward and pedestrian. I am disappointed in my ordinariness. I want to be, in the words of the great Garrison Keillor, named Sun God, King of America, Idol of Millions, Bringer of Fire, the great Haji, Thundar, the boy giant. But some of this disappointment runs deeper, this disappointment in myself. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic. I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights, hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished and valued. I look on in them, on, in them, in on them as they sleep at night, and I remember how the day actually went. I remember how they were trapped in a fight over checkers and I walked out of the room because I didn't want to spend the energy needed to teach them how to handle conflict. I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw in herself. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and I'm the dad and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw the look of hurt and confusion in her eyes and I knew there was a tiny wound in her heart that I had put there. And I wish I could have taken those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks, but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time to myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I think of the day I was born when I carried the gift of promise, the gift given to all babies. I think of that little baby and what might have been, the ways I might have developed mind and body and spirit, the thoughts I might have had, the joy I might have created. I'm disappointed that I still love God so little and I sin so much. I've always had the idea as a child that adults were pretty much the people they wanted to be. <laughs> That's the funniest thing you'll hear me say today right there. Yet the truth is I'm embarrassingly sinful. I'm capable of dismaying amounts of jealousy if someone succeeds more visibly than I do. I'm disappointed in my capacity to be small and petty. I cannot pray for very long with my mind drifting into a fantasy of angry revenge over some past slight I thought I had long since forgiven or some grandiose fantasy of achievement. I can convince people I'm busy and productive and yet waste large amounts of time watching television. These are just some of the disappointments I have. Other ones are, are darker ones that I'm not ready to commit to paper. The truth is, even to write these words is a little misleading because it makes me sound more sensitive to my fallenness than I really am. Sometimes, although I'm aware of how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much and I'm disappointed in my lack of disappointment. <laughs> is there any part of that that you can identify with? Those words, the reason I share those, and I know it was lengthy, is they are so close to the testimony of the most impactful Christian in the history of the world. His name was Paul. And today we're getting ready that, you know, in January, we're going to look at Romans 8, the gem of the New Testament. We're going to take a long time to go through Romans 8. And what sets up Romans 8 is these words. Last week we looked at the law. The law is necessary, the law is accusatory, the law is incendiary, the law is transitory. And we know, he says, that the law is spiritual. 
But in and of myself, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. If what I want to do, I do not do what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. That's, again, the, the Greek word sarx. That's that part of us that is fallen. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. If I do what I want do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, this principle, this, this dynamic at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war. That's what's interesting. The Bible, Peter talks about this in his letter, that you are at war, waging war against the law of my mind and making a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. There's this sense that if you let it, shame will kill you. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And this is the turning of the narrative. This is the turning of the narrative right here. This is where it shifts, where he says, now, and this is really important. The reason this is critical is because at some point, you just give up. You give up. You just I can't. I've tried. I've tried this Christianity thing. And you're so either consciously or unconsciously ashamed, you just stay away from God. You're like Adam and Eve, again, in the garden. I'm just going to cover myself up. Remember when your kids were little and they would cover their eyes hoping you didn't see them? Because their eyes were covered. And you disconnect from God. And that's when death starts happening. When you disconnect, you're so ashamed. You say, what a, what a wretched person. I mean, I said I've been a Christian for 20 years. How can, I still, how can I still get that impatient? How can I still be that selfish? How can I, how can I fall back into my addiction? How, I mean, I've said, I've sang God loves me. How can I do that? And Paul answers this. This is, this is like when you fail and when you're disappointed in yourself, if you can go here, you can't lose. What is it? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That what does, what, what, what does God do when you've taken advantage of his grace and fallen? What does he do? Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. That's the scandal. That's, that's the turning of the heart. That's, that's the shortening of the breath. What? I myself, in my mind, you let me live by myself. I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But now, this, Paul says, is my guiding principle. Remember, he was a murderer of Christians. People understand this. I think the reason God chose Paul as an example of his grace, as he says in 1 Timothy 1, is because he was a Nazi. That's what he was. He who's, like the SS used to seek out Jews and drag them out of the house. Paul literally did that because you were a Christian. And Jesus got a hold of him. And, and, and so for many of us, myself included, this is one of my life verses. As a person who is in shame recovery, there is, say this verse with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus except for Jane. doesn't say that. Except for Jim. He's done some really, doesn't say that. There's no condemnation. You wonder why the gospel changed 
this man saw into the preacher of the gospel, Paul, it's because he came to know this gospel personally through the revealed, resurrected Christ who personally said, I died for you, Paul. I was raised to life for you. And this is where the hope of the message of Christmas shines so bright in the dark disappointment we feel in ourselves, if we're honest. The good news is that a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The really good news is the Savior is not just born to you. He can be born in you. And that will never change. This is the true hope of Christmas is that what Christ offers is the possibility of experiencing on earth the life I was intended to live. I get to, I start experiencing this is who he meant for me to be. I've told you before that one of my most encouraging circumstances has been when I've gone back to my high school for a reunion, or a, 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 usually it's a, a athletic thing. And I walk those halls and I get to experience the person who used to walk these halls no longer lives. Christ has been born. Christ has been born in me. Not because of anything I have done, but because of his own mercy and grace. This is why I love Kierkegaard's words, and now with God's help, I shall become religious. Is that what it says? I shall become pietistic. Is that what it says? No. Now with God's help, I shall become the person he intended for me to be when he thought of me. I shall become myself. This is why the the Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 4.19, that I, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He, he's giving this idea of just, uh, there's this spiritual gestation that starts taking place. When you receive Christ, he then says, I want to grow in you. I want you to be born again. But the new birth is the second birth is not you trying, it's me forming myself in you. And this is available to every, every, every single person. Where, you know, we, we talk about the win. You know what the win of a mission that says our, our win, our mission is to connect people to Christ. You know what our win is? Here's our win. Is whenever a Southbrooker thinks, acts, and then feels, as in that order, I think, I act, and then I feel. Not I feel, and then I think and act. I, th- act, I think, act, and feel. As Jesus would, if he were in this situation, that's our win. That's our win. You know, if today your wife wants to watch a Hallmark Christmas movie, but your favorite football team is on, Jesus formed in you will hand over the remote control. And Jesus isn't formed that much in me yet, so today we'll be watching the Browns at our house. This, I mean, this is the whole, I mean, this is, it's amazing, like, because we, we think it's this big thing where I'll, I'll become Haji, evangelist of the gospel, God of, of the, no, it's these little moments where you go, man, the old person wouldn't have thought that, wouldn't have acted that way, and wouldn't be having this feeling right now. Yay, God! Yay, God. 
And it doesn't happen as quickly as we want it to, does it? That's why some of you get disappointed. You think, what's wrong with me that it's taking so long to kick in? Frederick Buechner once wrote that every age has produced fairy tales. And the reason is that it emanates from the human heart. The things of the gospel that feel too good to be true, they come from the human heart. The longings of the human heart. And he said something inside of us wants to believe that the world as we know it is not the whole story. He said we long for the re-enchantment of reality. We hope that death is not the end, that the universe is something more than just an enclosed terrarium. And so we keep making up and repeating stories that hold the promise of another world. But these stories don't simply demand that another world exists. A common feature of fairy tales is that the enchanted world is close. It's not far away. You step into a wardrobe and all of a sudden, where are you? You're in Narnia. You walk through a forest and you stumble upon a cottage with seven dwarfs. And this other totally non-disappointing, very hopeful world is closer than you thought. The great J.R.R. Tolkien said, it is the mark of the good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to the child or person that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beating and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears as keen as that given by any form of literary art. I know so many people at our church who either had abortions or paid for abortions and they came to Christ as Amber so articulately communicated about a month ago and the the reality came to them of what they'd been in denial. But I have been with some people when Romans 8.1 became real to them. His grace is greater than my sin. There is now no condemnation for me. And you get to see sometimes not just a lifting of the heart, but sometimes tears. Because you see, the greatest fairy tales, think of this, are not just about the transformation of the world. What are the greatest fairy tale stories about? The transformation of the hero. The hero's journey. Frog becomes a prince. An ugly duckling becomes a swan. A wooden marionette becomes a real boy. Orphan girls become beautiful princesses. Hobbits become Middle Earth saving heroes. And Beekner said that these are the features the gospel of Christ has in common with fairy tales But there is one great difference. Here is the difference. The difference is this one is true. (laughs) The greatest one is true. This morning when I got to my office, I flipped open my MacBook. And almost immediately in the upper right-hand column of the screen flashed Sunday, December 17, 2023. That implicitly acknowledged that no matter what I, the user of that MacBook, thinks about Jesus Christ, his birth split history in two. There's something about this birth that is like, unlike any other, no other birth has been like this one, that put a split in the middle of history. 
we try to deny his impact by calling it the current era now, et cetera, et cetera. But what we can't deny is that event split history into two parts. Some of you might remember in 1969 when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, an over-exuberant Richard Nixon exclaimed, this is the greatest day in the history of the world since creation. And Billy Graham, the evangelist, happened to be with him at that time and said, uh, Mr. President, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and no matter how you look at history, Billy Graham was right. This baby eventually split Rome. This baby eventually brought Rome to its knees. This baby who spoke in his lifetime to fewer people than Billy Graham would speak to in one of his stadium crusades. Think about that. This baby changed the world more than any other individual in history. More than any other individual. The most ironic fact about the ultimate fairy tale is it is true. It is not disappoint. And what Jesus did is he came and he said, as we sang this month and we'll sing at Christmas Eve, he went around saying, y'all been waiting for heaven. Heaven is here. And it's me. The great words of, of Mark chapter 1 verse 15 where Jesus said this. He said, the time has come. In Galatians 4, Paul would say, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. The time has come. The, 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 the kairos is here. The right moment is here. The kingdom of God is closer than you think. It is near. Turn. That's what repent means. Turn from you going your way, turn to my way, and believe the good news. That's what it means every day when you get up, you turn. You turn away from your proclivity to live your own way, and you say, Jesus, restore my union with you today. Seal me in you again. I turn to you. And then, thank you, Sheila. <laughs> the kingdom of God is closer than you think. And if you watch, if you watch the fairy tales, they, they hint toward this, and then they fall short. I, I have a new top five favorite Christmas movie. It's the movie Spirited, which is a creative retelling of Charles Dickens' classic Christmas Carol. And Will Ferrell plays Ebenezer Scrooge, but it's 200 years after Scrooge has died. And he, for the last 200 years, has been a part of a spirit team trying to redeem rotten people. They go after the rotten ones because who have impact because if they change them, they change so many lives. And Ryan Reynolds plays a self-serving, successful media expert, absolute jerk, Clint Briggs, who is classified as not just rotten, he's unredeemable. There's, he's a wretched person. There's no hope for this person. His life is based on the premise that people do not ever change. He's, he's wounded by something that happened to him when he was a kid. And his whole premise, as a matter of fact, it's why he's so success, successful in managing and creating chaos is because it's based on the premise. People don't change. They're predictable. They're selfish. And so Scrooge, Will Ferrell, wants to change him because Scrooge for 200 years has been living with this notion, I'm not really good. I'm not really good. I know I'm living this, but I'm faking it. I'm really not good. I am that Scrooge that was responsible for a little boy named Tiny Tim dying. That's who I really am. I, he could not get beyond the self-condemnation. 
And at the end, this redemptive shift has happened in both of them, and they've become bros. They're now bros. And Clint Briggs, in a dramatic moment, says to Scrooge, I'm your bro, and your bro is telling you to calm down and go ice skating with your new girlfriend. And Scrooge says, she thinks I'm actually good. And Clint says, well, maybe you are now. Scrooge, oh, so now you do think people can change. And Clint said, oh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe there's no magical quick fix. Maybe you got to put in the work. Maybe if you tithe to your church. I oh, know he didn't say that. He didn't say that part. <laughs> Maybe you got to put in the work. You ever think about that? You got to wake up each day, get out of bed, and decide who you want to be. And this is where it takes you to the gospel and then it stops. The part of this that's true, and I'll give you a hint on how this works. The part of this that's true is this. The part of this that's true is that once you receive this gift by faith in Christ, there is now no condemnation hanging over my life. Whenever I feel disappointed, I reconnect to the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation. There's only grace upon grace. And then you walk in your day with that assurance. But how that lives in you, how that grows in you, how that gestation process happens in you, I'll tell you this right now, this is one of those important things you'll hear about being a person of Jesus, is not by trying, it's by training. If I tell you, you need to run a marathon next year or else something bad's gonna happen to you, I'd need to give you at least a year to train for that because it wouldn't be about trying, would it? It'd be about training. You can try all you want. If you don't train, you're not going to make it. And to live like Jesus would live so that in the moment of the remote control, you think, act, and feel as Jesus would if he were in that living room at that time. If you do that, how do you do that? You do that by training. Do the things Jesus did, and over time, he grows in you. I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so for us, we reduce those down to five things that Jesus did regularly. Solitude, he went away to a lonely place where he prayed. Scripture, he was, he was immersed in the scriptures. Service, he washed the feet of his disciples. Support, he was in a supportive relationship with his disciples. And significant events, pivotal moments in his life. And we believe that as you just do those a little bit every day. Like every day, it's amazing how days stack up and then one day you're walking the halls of your high school and you go, the person who used to walk these halls is not alive anymore. Christ has been born in me. Oh my gosh. And he's just, it's, like, you just, it's like the little kid who, who looks up at the marks on the inner part of the the pantry door where the, the oh my gosh I, I grew I grew Lucado what I want us to do today is is just I want us to the words of a little child of Bethlehem be born in us this day cast out our sin and enter in and Locato does something at the end that is, for me, designed to get us ready for Christmas, but start practicing what we're going to do at Christmas this morning. And if you would, I'd like for you to take a little time to do this.
Lucado closes his chapter, What Man Dared Not Dream. You'd think we could do better. You'd think that over 16 centuries, we'd develop a hero who'd resolve all of our uncertainties and fears. But we can't. As noble as all our heroes have been, as courageous as all of them were, they were conceived in the same stained society as you and I. Except one. There is one who claimed to come from a different place. There is one who, though he had the appearance of a man, claimed to have the origin of God. There was one who, while wearing the face of a Jew, had the image of a creator. Those who saw him, who really saw him, knew there was something different. At his touch, blind beggars saw. At his command, crippled legs walked. At his embrace, empty lives filled with vision. He fed thousands with one basket. He stilled a storm with one command. He raised the dead with one proclamation. He changed lives with one request. He rerouted the history of the world with one life, lived in one country, was born in one manger, died on one hill. So when it comes to goodies and candy and cherub cheeks and red noses, go to the North Pole for sure. But when it comes to eternity, forgiveness, purpose, grace, and truth. Go to the manger, kneel with the shepherds and wise men, and worship the God who dared to do what man dared not dream. And that's what we want to do today. If, if you would, take a moment. If you want to, get on your knees. Bow down. Just bow. Just say, my dear Lord Jesus Christ, I come to you as my sovereign Lord and I surrender my life to you today. I give you my body as a living sacrifice. I give you my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I give you my spirit. It is yours. Cover me in your cross. Raise me with your resurrection and seat me at your right hand with your ascension. I invite your Holy Spirit to live within me today, to take captive my thoughts. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would send your angels to work on my behalf as they did for Mary and Joseph. And if you do that, he's promised he'll answer that. It's an immediate gift and it's a life of growth. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Steve's going to come out right now and he's going to close us. And uh, I want to pray because I want to pray for the thousands of people who will be here at Christmas. Would you bow your head and pray for me? Uh, pray with me right now. Father, people are going to come through this door, these doors, who don't know you don't want to be here. People are going to come through these doors this, this next weekend who are here because somebody made them come. Family obligation. Our church joins together right now to pray for that lost button. For that guy who feels unredeemable. For that gal who feels unredeemable. 
then the great words of Beekner, there would be, and the great words of Tolkien, there would be a turning of the heart, a catching of the breath, that something done, said, sang, prayed on Christmas Eve would begin a gestation process where they eventually look back and say, on that night, I was born again. And we look forward to the stories because they happen because this gospel still works. In Southbrook, in Jesus' character, for Jesus' sake, prayed together and everybody said, amen. See you at Christmas, everybody.